March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. You're listening today to my interview with Garth Stein, recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, Vashon, Washington. So, Garth, thank you for coming to the studio. Oh, it's my pleasure to make a little trip over to Vashon. I'm really, really happy you're here because the phone interviews are great, but I love having someone right in the room. I can actually look at them. (laughs) So, book number one. Raven stole the moon, um, and if I pronounce it sort of, sort of vaguely correctly, clink it, clink it, it yes, click it, clink, clink it, clink it, okay, clink it. clink it, Indian, in the in Alaska, southeastern Alaska, yes, southeastern Alaska, okay, and your mom is clink it, yeah, my mother's side of the family uh, was clink it. From my mother grew up in the small town of Wrangell, Alaska. Uh, oh, which nice is name. almost as depressing as it sounds. Oh. <laughs> it's uh, we go there. Uh, we have kind of these weird family reunions, and so when someone dies, the tradition is the following Fourth uh, of July we convene on Wrangell. <laughs> so oh, wow. we were just there a couple of years ago for my uncle, and uh, I had a cousin who just recently died. So it looks like I know where I'm going for the Fourth well, of July. Fourth, oh, <laughs> that is a really actually that's a very interesting tradition. And the Fourth makes sense, I guess, because the weather is really good, yeah. and a lot of people have time off from work e- anyways. It, well, yeah, I mean it, it's a big deal. Fourth of July is big in Alaska. The oh. weather is nice. It's late until eleven thirty, light until eleven thirty at night. Yeah. Uh, on in the town of Wrangell, it's got maybe what fifteen hundred people max, and they. Have a whole uh-huh. parade, but the kids kind of get a lot of freedom to go running around and right. exploring and doing things that maybe we've somewhat lost. I think you retain mm-hmm. it here on Vashon more than, than in the city over there. But uh, Yeah, no, it is actually quite normal for your children to just wander off in the middle of the night into the forest. Actually, my son does it all the time. Yeah, And if I lived in, I don't know, Redmond, I'm not quite sure that would be the norm. You, uh, uh, Child Protective Services would come and take your children away for being free-range children. Oh, yeah. I got to love that movement. Yeah. Yeah. I guess <laughs> it, it's true. It's true. Here, we've got a little bit more of the normalcy that existed 40 or 50 years ago, I guess. Yeah. You know, things really have changed quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about it with re- with regard to A Sudden Light. Um, the book is actually set in 1990 because right. I wanted that pre-digital innocent age oh, okay. and it's in a neighborhood that I grew up near um, in North Seattle so we used to do things I mean my both my parents worked and yeah. the, the rule in the summer was you know be home by dinner try not to get yourself abducted you know yeah. not not to use too populist of a phrase but we're not really living in the now uh-huh. and and uh, in a sense that's where we have to sort of I try to refocus, I think, a little bit. Right. Well, or we're living in a world of manufactured fear. Definitely yeah, oh yeah. it is manufactured. I mean, there can be authentic reasons, but there are people who are intentionally using fear as a tool to manipulate. And that's what we have to become aware of. And then you can see it. Right. Now, if you want to get really, if we want to go far down that rabbit hole, the question is, is it just the narrative of fear that's being controlled by other people or is there actual fear being created? In other words, uh, this is my new book I'm working on. I can't talk about yeah, it. No, no, I can't talk about it. But the idea no of spoilers are deep. No, 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 no. But, <laughs> but imagine if every single conspiracy theory in the world uh, were true you know, mm-hmm. and, and they all are, by the way, <laughs> then that's the world of my new book. So right. the, the, Corporations, the media, the government actually manufacturing mm-hmm. incidents of certain things and then in order to create fear and then denying that they happened. It does sound like 1984. Well, there's a little bit of that mixed in there. See, because what I find fascinating is that, you know, back in the old days of 1984, mm-hmm. when, when George Orwell wrote that, what was the idea of a totalitarian government? One that had one message and forced mm-hmm. that message down everybody's throat. Big right. Brother was there and you had to toe the Big Brother line. Right. Now, what what's interesting is that the future as it has evolved is not that at all. We live in the same sort of fear-based society that they lived in, mm-hmm. but it's through disinformation and misinformation. Is There's too much information. The mm-hmm. idea of astroturfing where people are gra- fake grassroots groups do social media in order to obfuscate things that are, are discredit oh, yeah. things that are really going on. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a flooding. So what's happening is they're flooding us with way too much innuendo, rumors, half-truths, so that we can't figure out what the truth is. Mm-hmm. And in our confusion, then we just go to the simplest one. Right. Right. And so this is this. So I'm writing a book about truth. 
Well, you know, and it's, 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 well, it's, I'm sure it's got to be a lot of fun, actually, to be writing that book. I mean, this planet is just oozing with interesting stuff, whether it's what's going on psychologically in North Korea. I mean, okay, long story short, sociology was my love in college. So, back to <laughs> Raven Stoll. Hey, we're having a hard time talking about books here. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So, well, but I, well, I, I'm so excited about all four of these books. Raven Stole the Moon. What I, what I found fascinating was not just a little bit of the storyline you were mentioning, but what I loved about it was that you have an authentic family life linkage to the story in a way. A little sure. teaser for our listeners. Sure. Raven Stole the Moon was my first novel. I didn't, when I started writing it, I didn't realize I was writing a novel. I just was kind of rambling and uh, I wrote a bunch of pages, about 40 pages, and I gave them to my wife to read. And she, she admitted that she was surprised. She said, keep writing. And so I did. And uh, it's the story of, of a young mother, a woman who uh, uh, comes from the same background that I had. She's not from Alaska, but her mother is. And she has a Clinkett Indian uh, his, history. So as I do, I'm part Clinkett. And so I, I, all that's kind of mm-hmm. autobiographical in a way. And then it veers from that autobiography. She's on a, on a vacation um, in Alaska near this town where her mother grew up. And uh, her young child uh, drowns in a boating accident. Mm. And uh, it's very tragic, and they don't ever recover the body. Year, a couple years pass, and her marriage completely falls apart, and mm-hmm. she's having addiction problems, and it's really – she doesn't know what to do. So she takes off, heads up to Alaska on the, on the Alaska State Ferry. And she uh, starts just trying to get in touch with herself, to just be alone, uh, and – Things start to happen. Weird things start to, creepy things start to happen. And, and mm-hmm. she meets a shaman, but is he really? And she and meets this strange guy who she kind of gets a crush on. And then this dog starts following her. And she gets embroiled in a whole, see, there's a myth of the Kushtaka among the Tlingit Indian. Mm-hmm. And the Kushtaka were given power by the raven to um, shapeshift. And they were given the duty to look after souls who might die of uh, exposure or, or they were drowning, mm. and they were allowed to take those souls. And click, the Clicket very much believe in reincarnation. So if you mm-hmm. don't have the body to release... So you didn't... Oh, you don't have the body to release. You have to, you have to, you have to uh, burn, you have, you have to cremate the body to release the spirit. Oh, and so if you... So they die of exposure, meaning you never find them. Right. If you they never, drown, uh, you never find exactly. them. Okay. Oh, Oh, that's brilliantly interesting. Okay. So the Kushtaka, and she starts hearing all about this, and she starts learning about it. She's like, her son is with the Kushtaka. Right. So so then it goes into really magical realism, and she has a whole uh, journey into the netherworld, and and Mm -hmm. it's about, you know, coming to terms with, with death and so forth. And before that, just I just want to give people some background. You were a documentary filmmaker. So that's just interesting background, I think, because documentary film makers are just doing really brilliant work so often, I think, at, at teasing out the important stories that need to be told. Yeah, you still have to have the dramatic structure and everything, and it's sort of storytelling with found objects, I like to call it, and, mm-hmm. and you have to try to craft the story that is compelling, uh, and you are somewhat, um, you know, limited by your resources. And so in that sense, right. it's a it is a, it's almost a puzzle like, but you know, when I, uh, when I graduated from college and went to film school, I thought I would be a screenwriter and, and it, I, I had a negative reaction to the whole medium. I just couldn't do it. Mm. That's when I veered into documentary films and I wasn't really ready at that young age. I wasn't mature enough as a person or as a storyteller to be able to tell my own stories yet. So I really took refuge in the world of nonfiction film. Mm-hmm. Then when I was, 32. Talk about a great way to discover the world, though. Oh, yeah. Like, my my son recently said something about schedules. Um, I think he wanted me to do something for him, and I said, you know, I can't do that because I've got the schedule that I've, I've set. Because if I don't have a schedule, I literally, I will get so distracted by very intriguing, awesome things to do that I won't do the one thing I want to do. And he rails a little bit about, you know, humans aren't designed to have a schedule. You know, we're designed to sort of, you know, be more fluid and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, I said, you could go be a journalist. You could be a photojournalist. You could do all these things that are out there in the world where flexibility is the key to success and your ability to to respond, you know. And being a documentary filmmaker, I would assume there's scheduling in there, but also there's got to be a little bit more of that artistic, you know, go where the opportunity suddenly presents itself. Like, is there a little bit more mobility and fluidity? Well, I think there can be. I think that's the choice that one makes and how one approaches his or her life as opposed, right. you know, you can kind of, 
it's really how flexible do you feel? I mean, when I write a book, for instance, um, I make an outline. Uh, I make an outline because it it gives it gives me something to adhere to. It gives me a structure that I can depend on if I need it. However, if there's any a detour comes up or a random occurrence happens, like new character walks into the book or somebody mm-hmm. d- does something I didn't expect, I go with that. I always mm-hmm. go with the detour. If it doesn't work out, I can get back to my outline. Right. And I think if you take that that idea and, and turn it into a metaphor and apply it to your life, then, right. you know, we all have our plan. We can have plans. But if something comes up, you got to take the detour. You know, the fun right. stuff happens on on detours. You know, I worked for a Broadway producer for a while. When I was in school, I worked uh, for the Theater Guild, and they had a theater program, Theater at Sea, and so it was an insert program. So mm-hmm. I, I worked on that uh, for a number of years. I've, I've seen on cruise ships with Helen Hayes and Mary Martin and, and Colleen Dewhurst and uh, just crazy, you know, older Broadway stars, mm-hmm. and I've seen every place in the world for four hours because I was on a cruise ship. Oh, and I was right. 23, 24, 25 years old. And I just, it was great. I was getting paid. Right, I was right, going right. around the world. And now my eight-year-old takes the globe and like points to, he says, you ever been to Hong Kong? I'm like, yeah, it was Hong Kong before it was the new Hong Kong, when it was the old Hong Kong. Right, right. <laughs> Still under British. Yeah. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. So, so I just think young people need to be reminded that there's this fabulous world out there waiting to be discovered and don't limit your expectations of what can be out there. Yeah, and I think that the, the world really has undergone huge change, and part of it is, of course, you know, just communications and the internet and and the ability to sort of be see and be exposed to new things. But for sure, I think you need to be able to, in the same way that you know, there's no one way to uh, get an education. You know, mm-hmm. we were just talking about that a little bit earlier, and yeah. and different and moda- modes of schooling and so forth, and. If you're comfortable in a college environment and you want that, then go do that. But right. if you're not, there are a dozen other ways to get the exact same information faster and for less money than going to a grad school for to get an MFA in writing or something like that. You know, these right. sorts of things. Yeah. That's what, when my wife and I have raised our kids. We always said, you know, it's okay you if you want to create an, an alternative version of how you see your life playing out. Feel free to do it, but do it in a thoughtful and considered manner. That's right. all we ask. Just don't do it like willy-nilly, you know. Understand the ramifications of the decisions you're going to make because they yeah. will affect you, but they're only going to affect you. They're not going to affect me. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's interesting as you get older, it gets easier and easier to say that because when they're little tiny babies, you know, like your heart just basically just, you know, left oh, sure. your body and landed in another body and you're like super vulnerable. But as my oldest son has gotten, you know, really close to becoming 18 the, and all that, I'm finding it's just, I'm like surprised actually at how naturally occurring it is to start to sense this really is your life to lead. I'm invested in being a fabulous supportive mom your whole life long. I'm not invested in what you exactly do because it's your life to lead, you know? Right. Which is a so, perfect segue into my you. second novel, <laughs> how, how Evan Broke His Head and Other Secrets. Right. Okay, let's repeat the title for the listeners. So, How Evan Broke His Head and Other Secrets is the title of your second published book. That's right. And Evan is a 31-year-old slacker musician in Seattle. Um, (laughs) Are are there any of those? No, no, of course not. Very fictional. (laughs) Uh, Evan has uh, epilepsy, a very severe form of epilepsy that he got. uh, He... Uh, unfortunately, his father uses phrases like he gave to himself. He made a pretty stupid choice when he was young and had got hit by a car. And due to the head trauma, he got this epilepsy. And the story of the book is when the book opens, he suddenly reunited with the 14-year-old son he didn't know he had. So he got a girl pregnant in high school. Their family moved away. And now suddenly he's grappling with having to take custody of this kid. Mm. And so it's a father and son sort of story, but talking about what we were just talking about, about children mm-hmm. growing up, uh, you know, Evan at 31 years old uh, is, as he says, he lives down to expectations. Mm. His father is a famous surgeon at Harborview Medical Center mm-hmm. and uh, had plans for his son. His son went and right. screwed it up. And they say, you messed up your life. You put yourself in this position. You're never going to amount to anything. Look at your brother. He's my, look at him. He's a big famous lawyer now. And what wow. are you? And so rather than fight that narrative, mm-hmm. uh, Evan just accepts it. He says, right, you're right. Look at me. I'm bad. But then 
through contact with his 14-year-old kid, who's Mm -hmm. no angel, by the way, he understands that he is allowed to take control of his narrative. You know, that that we have our own story, right? And oftentimes our story is influenced by the people around us, especially our family members, telling us things about ourselves. Right. I, my mother-in-law used to do that when my two older boys were younger. She would walk in and, and when they were little kids and she would say, you're going to be the actor and you're going to be the athlete. Uh, and, and it was you. cute. It was totally innocent. And Right, right. You, what was your reaction to that? I was just like, can we not like pigeonhole them <laughs> at three years old? I mean, can we give them a little bit of flexibility here? Uh, oh, my. So, was she right? Close. What the, the, the musician and an athlete, not an actor, but close. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so she maybe she was just being prescient, but I just thought it was funny. The point is, the stories that we tell ourselves about our lives are influenced by the, the narrative that we feedback that we get from other people as right, well. Right. And so we can get ourselves bogged down by that narrative and it, it, we forget that we can actually change that narrative. Mm-hmm. But if we want to change our story, guess what? You can change the story. The ending hasn't been written yet. And that's right. what Evan learns through the course of the book that, you know, he may not uh, have made the right choices always. And clearly he hasn't. Uh, right. That doesn't mean that he can't start making the right choices now. My friends were oftentimes characters in books. And I found that the right books and the right characters were able to do great mentoring and role modeling for me. And I could imagine there are a lot of people who, if they read How Evan Broke His Head and Other Secrets, my gosh, every reader is going to have a takeaway from that. And not one you can control or predict, but that type of a story has got to probably cause a lot of people to have their heart crack a little and a chink open a bit because everyone, as you say, has been impacted by the narrative given to them by the people around them. I love the idea that this story is going to remind them that they don't have to be held back that way. Yeah, and that's really the overriding theme. And it's it's interesting that um, we were talking about people plugging into a book in different ways. You know, and your best friends being characters, you know, I, now, of course, I'm going to say it's a brilliant medium, you know, yeah, long sure. form fiction, because that's what I do. Yeah. So I'm sure if I were a photographer, I'd say, now the brilliance of photography is. Well, there's brilliance <laughs> everywhere, right? So there you go. But the brilliance of fiction for me is that in order for it to work, the reader has to generate empathy. Right. And and they've done studies, you know, um, among college students uh, about um, empathy levels. Can you imagine figuring out how you measure this? But sociology, but, gotta yeah, love exactly. It. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and readers of fiction are far more empathetic than people who don't read fiction. Oh, that is interesting. And so we need to really start with our kids early. Now we do it young, you know, we we when they're kids, sure. and then we kind of let it let it go and especially today with so many distractions of television and internet and Computer video games, games you know yeah. all these things we we have to remember that that in order to read you have to put something into it right right in order to get something out of the book you have to invest time and your attention you have to then oh all of it the, i mean the visual the, yeah yeah oh my gosh you know i, I can't do horror I, there's a book that was sent to me by an author i really want to interview him I started reading the book a little bit, you know, scanning through it, and I put it down. I'm like, I'll probably still interview him, but I will not be reading his book. The first moment of horror, it's already seared in my head. Right now, it's still there. I mean, I stopped. I think about a paragraph or two into it, but it got in there. I'm so visual. I can see every character, every world, everything I've ever read. I mean, it's all visual. But then you have your character doing things. You, you mm-hmm. see a character who has a problem and and has to overcome obstacles, and and you say, "Oh, is that how?" I wonder what I would what would I do in that right. position. And you see how other people overcome obstacles and how other people. And so immediately you've created connections already. Your brain is creating all these wonderful connections and with all over the world. The only reason you care is because of empathy. Really interesting. Yeah, I, I just I just love the the conversation that goes on between readers and writers. I get a lot of emails and things from people, and it's really fascinating that uh, how people respond and why they respond and what they're responding to and how different how different it all is. Right. Now, if I understand correctly, you have literally answered every email you've ever received. Yeah, I mean, uh, one time my hard disk crashed, and I think I lost a few, but. 
uh, yeah, I, I always answer my email. It may take me a few weeks, but I, uh, if someone's going to take the time to track down my website and right. email me to tell me how much they loved my book, then I am going to take the time to uh, reply to them. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've, sometimes I've like wanted to send an email to an author, and I've just like not done it because I'm like, oh, they're too, you know, they get, whatever. But that's really awesome. Yeah, I love it when I get one, and I get them these all the time. Dear Garth, or whoever's answering this email, because I know it's not Garth, because he would never answer his own email. And then it goes on his whole thing, and I like write back and I say, now why on earth would you think I wouldn't answer my email? Like, like what about my story gave you that impression? <laughs> then I think, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. They always answer back. I'm so sorry. I did. I just assumed that you would. Like, oh, yeah. that's, that's sweet. That's sweet. Do you get emails from young people? Because most of what you write, I believe, all of it is adult fiction. See, everything is adult fiction. But here's what happened with it happened with the art of racing in the rain, which was the third book. My segue. third book. Woo-hoo! It was my third book, but actually the first book that anybody really cared about. Um, it became kind of a big deal. And uh, I was getting emails from, get this, middle school librarians. I got several from middle school librarians saying, we love your book. We think it has great messages for young people, but we can't put it in our library because it has, we have community standards and it's got a bad, lot of bad words in it. And, oh. uh, and it's also got an allegation of uh, sexual molestation of a statutory nature. How about, how about that euphemism? <laughs> Well, well, I guess in elementary school, that's one of the main beefs, of course, with high school is the people who are not able to actually read about the stuff that is happening in their life and is is like they're living it. But no, you can't actually read it. Right. Now, now, so what we did for that is we created a young reader edition suited for fifth to eighth graders who live in communities where you're not allowed to say the F word. That is brilliant. So I picked up a whole bunch of new readers with that. And then in addition to that, because of the popularity of the character of Enzo the dog. Mm-hmm. The book is narrated by a dog. Uh, we've done these children's picture books now. There's The third one is coming out in near Halloween. So uh, Enzo Races in the Rain is the first one, kind of the launch. And then uh, right. we just came out with uh, Enzo and the Christmas Tree Hunt, which uh, takes place at a Christmas tree farm on Issaquah Hobart Road for the locals among oh, us. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> I think I actually one year... I remember going to Issaquah to get a tree, but I actually went to that spot. Probably. Oh and uh, and then the new one is uh, Halloween, and so it's a very scary Halloween. And then the fourth one, I've turned in the manuscript, and the illustrator is just starting his sketches now. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Enzo's had this whole this whole big life um, now the art, of uh, age-appropriate. Yeah, well, the <laughs> art of racing in the rain, I guess, was translated into 35 languages, yes, 35. I believe. How about you go ahead and give a little teaser to the listeners after I remind everybody that... You're listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. <laughs> and back to the next book. The Art of Racing in the Rain, yes. Well, the, the Art of Racing in the Rain specifically, you're going to give the teaser. Yeah, I'm giving you a teaser. this one. Okay, shoot. Uh, it's told from the point of view of a dog whose master is a race car driver. And this dog is convinced he's going to be reincarnated as a person in his next life. So he studies everything around him, all human interactions, uh, and so that he can... When he gets reincarnated, he'll be a, a good citizen and a good person. And he realizes by watching his master race cars that if you took all the principles that make you successful on the racetrack, balance, anticipation, never being worried about things that have already happened that you can't change, only focused on things that are in front of you that you can change. If you took all those principles from the racetrack and applied them to your life as a person, you would be a very fine person. And that's what he aspires to. Now, how did you <laughs> find the race car analogy? Okay, let me tell you first. And the, do you own Enzo? There is no, Enzo is beyond. Beyond. But, <laughs> yes, okay, all right. Uh, well, there's that picture of you with the puppy dog. Yeah, I have a dog. That's Comet. That picture of me is with Comet, our dog. And I love Comet, but, you know, she's a sweet, really a sweet dog. She ain't no Enzo. <laughs> so what happened with this book is that I was... Um, when I was making documentary films, a friend of mine asked me to consult on a film. They were looking; it was made in Mongolia, and they were looking for a U.S. distributor for it. And the, I, I took a look at this, and uh, it was called State of Dogs, and it was about the belief among the nomadic people in Mongolia that the next incarnation for their dog will be as a person. And so there were special burial rituals and certain to release the spirit and so forth. That would make so much sense, given that they would have lived in such tight communion with their canine partners and they really depended on the dogs mm-hmm. they're, they're not like little lap dogs these are mm-hmm. working dogs 
so I, it was really a lovely film. I, I didn't get involved for a number of reasons, but it, it was really stuck with me. And I thought, you know, one day I'm going to do something with that. But I had no idea what. Years went by. We moved to Seattle. In 2006, um, um, the poet Billy Collins comes to town uh, with Seattle Arts and Lectures. Fantastic series. And he's reading his poems at Benaroya Hall. And I was in the audience listening, and he's reading one of his poems called The Revenant, which means words from the dead. So it's mm-hmm. told from the point of view of a dog who's recently been euthanized. So it's being narrated from doggy heaven. Oh, and the first line of the poem is this. I am the dog you put to sleep, as you like to call the needle of oblivion. Come back to tell you this simple thing. I never liked you, which is funny, right? Yes. Okay, it got a huge yes. laugh. It got a huge <laughs> laugh at like Benaroya Hall, okay? And it, it goes on. It's a very funny poem. There's a nice twist at the end of it. And right. when I was listening to this and the reaction to the crowd, I was like, oh, wait a second. That's my book. See, it has the idea of a dog being reincarnated as a person, is a, it's a great idea, but it has to be told from the dog's point of view. And the dog has to be, you know, a little chippy. The right. dog has to be like, I'm smarter than everybody in this room, but no one listens to me because my tongue is too floppy to form words. Right. So Enzo, the dog, was born. So this was in the summer of 2006. Right. I was doing on, on tour for however broke his head and other secrets i was driving to every local bookstore i could go to to do readings mm-hmm. for two or three people mm-hmm. and i was going down to central oregon to do some readings in bend and i took my laptop and i i got to the hotel and i said doggy you better be ready and i started writing the first sentence of my book came to me gestures are all that i have sometimes they must be grand in nature mm. and i was like whoa i am on to something and i wrote a Furiously, just couldn't. And four months later, I had finished the first draft of The Art of Racing in the Rain. Mm-hmm. It was right before Thanksgiving. My in-laws were coming in from out of town. I, it was Tuesday before Thanksgiving. They were coming in that night. I was going to the Whole Foods on Roosevelt to pick up my Heidi organic game hen. Right. Nothing course. is too good for my mother-in-law. Okay. Oh, my. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why she loves you, right? Exactly. I was going to pick up my turkey, and my cell phone rang, and I looked. It was my agent. And he, I had just sent him the manuscript a couple of weeks before that. And right. I was really psyched because I knew he was going to tell me how brilliant I was and I would be able to relay that to my mother-in-law. Uh-huh. So I, I picked up the phone and I said, uh, what'd you think? And my agent said, it's narrated by a dog. And you're like, really? <laughs> I, exactly. <laughs> I, was, I said, I sent it to you. <laughs> I said, what'd you think of the book? And he said, no one's going to read a book narrated by a dog. No publisher will publish a book narrated by a dog. No marketing department would know how to market a book narrated by a dog. It's not even narrated by a dog. It's narrated by an author pretending to be a dog. Hmm. To which I said, Victor Hugo wasn't a hunchback. That didn't stop him. Mm-hmm. He didn't get the joke, apparently. Anyway. And the woman who wrote <laughs> Frankenstein there, was not a dismembered and reassembled There you go. See? Right. Meaning yeah. that we're allowed sometimes to write out. Mm-hmm. Outside of our experiences. I, he didn't get the joke or whatever. He, he was really mad. He gave me this long lecture about the state of the industry, how he was destroying my career and worse, taking him down with me. It was a... Well, now that was, that was you said, 2006? The, yeah, this was in 2006. Which was during the beginning of the implosion of the publishing industry. Yes, exactly. I would imagine, yeah. He was probably actually judging the reality of the publishing world appropriately. He's, maybe, yeah, but he, but he misjudged. He didn't have a whole book. lot of I- imagination, though, because yeah. he said, you know, he ended his diatribe by saying, "Just do me a favor, take this book and throw it away, and <gasps> go write me something I can sell." Oh my And goodness. these two words popped into my head, and I just had to say them. <laughs> Not those words. No, I know. words I can say on the radio. I said, "You're you're fired." So I fired my agent, and Which, uh, of course. For all the the writers out there, you know, typically you go somewhere to get some advice and they're going to be like, they'll say, if you write it and you love it and your agent doesn't, you should take the agent's advice. You should trust the agent. You should, you know, you know, don't say you're fired to the agent because probably they're in the right and you're in the wrong. And you are the blistering example that the opposite can be true. It, it is taking a risk, however, because yes. uh, it was my third novel and to not have an agent was a little <laughs> tricky. So. I sent. I started sending it out right away. Uh, agent after agent looked at it, emailed me or called me up and said, uh, "Like the story, like the idea, like the writing. It's narrated by a dog. We can't. We don't know how to sell this book. Right. No one would take the book. Mm. The following spring, 
Uh, I was at a fundraiser for King County Library Systems, a great library system in the Northwest. Oh, tell uh, me about it. Oh, my gosh. They do a fantastic uh, gala every spring called Literary Lions, and I, I go to it whenever I'm in town. I just was at it last year, in fact. And so I was went this year in 2007, and I was at the pre-author dinner sitting uh, with a bunch of other writers uh, eating our dinner before we had to go uh, entertain the people. Right. And uh, we were going around the table introducing each other and uh, came to me, and I said, uh, hi, my name is Garth, and I'm really frustrated because I've, I've got this book, and I think it's really good, but it's narrated by a dog, and no agent will touch it. Mm-hmm. And this other writer sitting across the table from me looked up from his plate and he said, oh, hey, you should talk to my agent. He sold my book and it's narrated by a crow. Ooh, <laughs> perfect. He said, I don't see why he couldn't sell a book narrated by a dog. That's right. And so uh, I, it's a true story. Lane mm-hmm. Mayhew is his name, a local writer. And uh, I got his agent's information and I sent him my pages. And that agent called me up two days later and he was crying. And Aww. he said, I love this dog and I love this book. You have to let me have it. And then it went on to... To do right. its its kind of blockbuster business, and so well, and that is that the, the true thing for um, writers to take away is that ultimately, the only thing that matters is that the agent and the book need to be the right pairing. Ultimately, yeah, writers know. can get very frustrated when you're, you're you're when you're seeking an agent and you get these responses that feel like they're platitudes. You know, they just say, uh, you know, it's really I lo- I love your book, but it, it just doesn't speak to me. Mm-hmm. And you think that's that's you know a backhanded rejection. No, they're being honest. They're being honest. Yeah. I mean, it takes it does take a lot of energy, and if the, an agent doesn't have the passion for it, you don't want that agent. Yeah, they're not going to sell it well for you if if they're just selling it because it's their job to sell it. That is just a million miles away from someone who is there's a there's a, okay there's a movie that just came out a while ago. Not like um I don't know like in the last couple of years or something. It's about the um the life. Of J.K. Rowling, mm-hmm. who wrote obviously the Harry Potter series, and there's now a movie about her life from childhood all the way up through you know her successes, and in it when the the young woman who read her book and went to the guy who was head of the publishing agency she worked for, and he looks at it and he goes, but it's a children's book, and she says. Yes, but there's something different and special about it. And she fought for the first Harry Potter book, and they kept trying and trying and trying and trying and trying with all these rejections. And the only reason they tried that hard was because it had it had hit her right. And and if J.K. Rowling had allowed maybe another agent who didn't love it as much to take it, they would have given up, and no one in the world would have ever met Harry Potter. Yeah. Well, I think that you have to, you know, I tell that story that I just told you, to, you know, to high school students and stuff. I'll go speak in schools and things. And um, I think it's important, you know, for them. The takeaway for that is, is, is like you're saying, if you believe something really, truly, deeply, you can't take someone else's word at face value. Uh, because, like, when I speak to writers, even, you know, someone says, well, what, with your editor, what if you have a difference of opinion about something with your editor? If you really believe in it, you can't you can't change it. Mm-hmm. Uh, y- your editor's name isn't going on the book. You, yours mm-hmm. is. You get full response. You're going to take all the blame. You know, you're going to get all the accolades if it succeeds. But you know you don't get to um, outsource responsibility. Right. And it's the same thing with you know I could easily have put the book in a drawer and said, oh well, didn't work that time, and then that would have been the end of it. But I really believed that it was going to resonate with people. And you know, it when, did. Yeah, and it did. Uh, three and a half years on the New York Times bestseller list. But with kids, you know, with teenagers especially, they, there's so much going on. They have so many decisions to make about things and going to school, not going to school, taking some time off, going to going into the military, going into the workforce. Peace Corps. All sorts of options. And I know for a fact, because I have a 19-year-old and a 17-year-old, everybody knows what's best for right. that kid. Everybody. The parents know, the friends know, mm-hmm. the teachers know, mm-hmm. the counselors. Everybody knows. Uncle Bob knows, but the only person who has to live with the results are the kid. Uncle right. Uncle Bob already screwed up his life. He doesn't get to screw up anybody else's. You better make decisions that are true to you, that resonate to you, or else you're going to regret where you end up. And and you can't blame anyone else about it. You can't. I mean, you're living. You're driving the car. So, yeah. you know, you do have to take responsibility for, you know, uh, you have to live deliberately and thoughtfully. And say, I understand what I'm getting into, and I can always get out of it. It's okay. I, life is life seems like well, it's really short when you're a teenager, but it's actually right. fairly long. Yeah. <laughs> and-
and 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 well, there's the there's the um, narrative in our culture of you know you go out and you basically have one career. And then 35 years later, you retire, and then there's this vague sense of what retirement is, and then you die eventually, you know. And, and I mean, I don't know. There are people who definitely do one career for sure, but most people I know have multiple areas of interest that they exploit, adventure through, you know, explore, and then it moves to the next one and moves to the next one. And that does not mean, oh, you're a failure at five things in a row. It means you enjoy the diversity of living on this planet. I always tell my kids, look, your body is your spaceship. And you need to think of yourself as a visitor to this planet who's been put into this spaceship. And it's going to last as long as you don't crash or you take care of it. And, you know, eventually it's going to expire its usefulness. And you've got roughly about 80 years to explore this planet. And what I'm concerned about sometimes is that the narrative comes so um, shutting down and compressive in a way that kids stop realizing that life is an adventure. And they start feeling that it's, it's this thing you can fail in so many ways and they get hemmed in, you know? Yeah. Well, we, we, this goes back to being, you know, being sort of guided by the fear of the unknown rather than, you know, the, 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 the joy or the energy of embracing the unknown. Discovery. Yeah. yeah, but it can be challenging. I mean, certainly it can. And, yeah. uh, you know, but I think it's good. It's a good muscle to train, as is our mm-hmm. empathetic muscle. You know, uh, it's it's good to. But, you know, even if if you're uncomfortable with, uh, you know, uh, foreign languages or something, and you don't care for that. There's still many different things you can explore close to home, you know, but having the attitude of being open to new experiences. Yeah. You have to imagine all the time that George Clooney from Up in the Air is laying you off and saying, don't think of this as being laid off. It's a new opportunity for you to open that pizza restaurant. <laughs> That's actually a really good movie. you got to get George Clooney in there at least once in an interview. Right, right, right. right. Okay, so seriously, it's Up in the Air, right? Yeah, everyone, next time you want to watch a movie, Up in the Air, George Clooney, and then... Well, what's the name of the woman? The woman, she's uh, oh, she's doing really good. Yeah, Sarah she's Shikay. great. I don't remember her oh, name. Oh, she's the singer in those movies about girls that sing a bunch. Everyone knows her. It's like it's poppy. Okay, all right. Uh, anyways, long story short, up in the air, check it out. And then you can find that quote moment about open the pizza restaurant you've always wanted to open. It's, uh, you know, it's, it was fun when I was writing The Art of Racing in the Rain. What was fun is I have a character who's a dog who basically is self-educated, right? Because mm-hmm. no one's going to take a dog to school. Right. Uh, he tried to teach himself to read, but that just didn't, it was his concentration, he hated the dinosaur, the purple dinosaur. And <laughs> so he gave up on reading. You know, he right. said, he, said he, he, can, he knows the difference between push and pull on a door, but that's pretty much the extent. Uh, other than that, he's really raised himself by, by watching television. He spends a lot of time watching television. Sure. And if you spent all your time locked in a house watching television, different channels... Uh, right. His Denny, his master, uh, leaves different channels on because he, when he goes to work, because he wants Enzo to have a well-rounded education. Aww. So sometimes the Discovery Channel, sometimes, you know, the yeah. Weather Channel, uh, usually racing channels, though that's the best. Right. Uh, it, you can imagine how distorted your worldview would be, and mm-hmm. so Enzo has a little bit of this in it. You know, he's convinced that uh, humans are have evolved from dogs, not from monkeys, and that do- dogs should have gotten the thumbs, and the monkeys, you know. It goes, there's yeah. a very, he has a whole yeah. convoluted right. thing. You're like, yeah. that totally, that totally doesn't make sense. But right. It's, right. he's passionate about it. Uh, but one at one point, he's spending the night at his in-laws, Danny's in-laws. And uh, he Enzo dubs them the evil twins. He, he really hates the in-laws. And at some point, the, they take him and they put him in the attached to garage. And they lock him in the garage for the night. And he's right. like, it's like torture. You know, there's only light from a little teeny clock and it's just like he's going mad so he he tries to remember all of his favorite movies mm. and and all the movies have racing in them because of course he's a race car dog right um but you know he uh, paul newman is his favorite actor because of uh his uh, racing movies and, as well as the fact that he uses you know renew uh, uh, palm oil from renewable sources instead of from mm-hmm. uh, Borneo or something. Uh, and, and of course he says uh, his third favorite actor is, uh, is George Clooney because uh, of the fabulous work he did uh, saving children on ER. And also because he looks a little like Enzo around the eyes. 
<laughs> making ER a believable story. Yes. yes. Yes, yes. Oh, okay, so that's The Art of Racing in the Rain. And, and then the most recent one, which came out a little while ago and is local. Yes. Yes. Um, a Sudden Light. A Sudden Light. That is, okay, so I recently joined um, a book group. I haven't been on a book group before, and I've always wanted to, and I thought, 2016, woo-woo. And at some point, if I get to be that person who gets to choose the book, it's going to be a sunlight because while it was sent to me and I was able to skim it, I have been really busy over the holidays and have not been able to actually delve in. But the zip-through, oh, my God. I, all I can say is like I was very, very excited for the moment when I would have the time to read every single word. So go ahead and do the teaser. Yeah. Okay. We got a lot to cover here. Yeah. So uh, uh, just keep in mind that with, with my new book, With a Sudden Light, I'm doing a big book club push. So if oh, you, nice. March, are, have it picked for your book group or right. if anybody out there in your fandom listeners right. are doing their uh, – want to choose A Sudden Light for their book club, right. contact me through my website. I have a book club kit. We still have some left, I believe, that we send out that have like a little recipe book and a CD, some music that goes along with the book. Oh, that's brilliant. As well as some other stuff. And I, if you if you would like, I will arrange uh, to Skype with your group. So, oh, I love Skype. We do, we do, I do a lot of Skype. In fact, I have one tonight. I have three tomorrow. I'm doing a ton of these Skypes. And that's global. So my yeah, friends that can in go Greece, anywhere. they yep. can be Absolutely. chatting with you about it. Okay. Well, then in that case, don't do too many spoilers. Oh, I won't do any spoilers. Chat- but I mean, you'd be chatting with these people too, so. But they, they will have read the book and it's fun to talk about the book after you've read it because right. there's a lot of stuff in there that we can talk about. So what's it about basically? It's a multi-generational family saga set against the Northwest timber industry. Um, that's sort of like the surface level of what right. it is. Right. More than that, it's about, uh, again, fathers and sons and, and how that primary relationship ripples through generations of a family. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about our connection with nature, especially here in the Northwest. If you're going to write about the Northwest, you have to write about trees. Of course. And most importantly for me, it's about being open to seeing the unseen, to peeling back the layers, to trying to see the connections that aren't obvious. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, it delves into the spiritual world there's a quite concretely there's a ghost in it it is a ghost story not Mm -hmm. a scary ghost not the haunting of hill house it Mm -hmm. is a spiritual ghost story uh but there is uh there is definitely a ghost wandering the halls of riddell house in this place called the north estate and that's where the seattle history comes in Mm -hmm. the north estate is based on a real place the highlands which is in north seattle it's a very wealthy enclave yes it actually it is. I recently was doing some um, research into sort of where the one percenters live in the country and mm. things like that. And I was quite surprised. The Highlands is a very quiet. You don't really know it's there. It's not screaming in your face like Martha Vineyard or something. No. But it's yeah, it still is very high end. Uh, it was started around the turn of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And it was started by the richest of the rich in Seattle. They wanted a golf course. And so they went and built a golf course. That's the Seattle Country Club. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they said, uh, well, we should build our little cottages around that. So they drew yeah. lots and they, they, the first guy built his house about 10,000 square feet cottage. Yeah. 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 And yeah. the next one, 12,000 yeah. and so on. And these are very elaborate and the whole grounds were, were designed by the Olmsted brothers who had also done the master plan for the Seattle oh, parks. So, you know, right, right, right. so uh, it, it was very beautiful, mm-hmm. very special and very exclusive. Mm-hmm. I grew up down the hill from there. I grew up in Innis Arden, which is a development that used to be the hunting grounds of the Boeing family. So then oh, it was, wow. it was their, their private reserve uh, oh, and then wow. they turned it into housing in the 50s. So that's where I grew up. Um, in the shadow of the highlands. And so it kind of stuck with me, I guess, um, always looking up the hill and seeing those mansions mm-hmm. up on the hill and wondering who lives there. But it's not actually locked off like a, like a it gated community? It is, is a okay. completely well, gated community. Yeah, okay. So my story is really about, um, it takes place, it's set mostly in 1990, mm-hmm. but it's about five generations of this family. Uh, in 1990, there's a young man, uh, Trevor Riddell, the youngest in the line of Riddell family, and uh, his parents are on the verge of divorce. Mm-hmm. And so his father brings and him he's home. Sixteen. He's fourteen. Fourteen. Okay. Okay. His father brings him home to Riddell House for the first time. He's never seen this place. His father never talks about his own history. Never talks huh. about his family history. There's something of a shame that he grew up in Connecticut, and so he, oh. he doesn't know. 
Trevor doesn't know he's clean when right, he walks in. Right, right. He, he walks into this house. It's this old mansion. It's practically collapsing. It's really unkempt. It's falling apart. But at one point, it was clearly very wealthy and very special. Right. He comes in. He meets for the first time his crazy aunt, Serena, who when his sister Serena, sister Serena, yeah. when when his when his, when Trevor's father said you're going to meet your aunt, he, he figured, uh, oh yeah, like dowdy old Mrs. Doubtfire aunt sort right. of thing. Uh, no, Serena is 35 years old and she's smoking hot and she is messing with Trevor's brain in a big way. Everything's a game with her. She's flirting with him. She's you can imagine how this can mess with the kid uh, for the mind of a 14 year old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he meets his uh, grandfather, Grandpa but Samuel. What I found interesting about a sudden light was it like I just couldn't land somewhere that I didn't want to stay. So I'm assuming the entire book is that juicy. Well, there's a lot of juice in there, and uh, and Serena is a, a was a hilarious character to write. I loved writing Serena, and uh, you know there are spoilers I'm not going to give. Obviously, Did I spoil? no, 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 no. Okay, because uh, that's what, that's what it's dealing with. It's dealing with you know the ramifications of actions that we have taken and how they stay with us. Uh, how we can pretend to leave things behind, but we don't leave them behind. And not mm-hmm. just uh, uh, intragenerationally, but intergenerationally. Mm-hmm. That, that a discussion had between a father and son in 1890 about uh, their their holdings in the timber industry and their conservation is the same story that's had between a different father and a son in the same family in 1990. Right. That we carry these things forward in every way. And there's, so there's a lot of fun stuff in there about Northwest history, about the history of the topography and about trees. Uh, there's tree climbing in there. In fact, um, two of the guys back in uh, in the 1890s uh, for fun, for sport, uh, climb, even though they're cutting down trees, they're harvesting them. Right. They also free climb trees. And wow. so and so I did some, some tree climbing, not free climbing. I did oh, it roped yeah. in. I did it with ropes. <laughs> There's a great climbing guide guru down in Portland. Uh, Tim Kovar is his name. Yeah, he has a place called Tree Climbing Planet, and he nice. he takes people up into trees. He took me up into an 800-year-old redwood, um, a couple hundred feet in the air, and yeah. it's just, you know, your relationship changes with a tree. The viewpoint. The viewpoint. It's, it's actually like there's a, some cliffs here on the island, and every time I walk along the cliffs, you can see the bald eagles below you. Hmm. Yeah. And I'm always like, and I, or the seagulls, and, and I'll be like, right, this is, and you look down, and it's so far away that you can't make out the detail of the rocks on the ground. You know, it gets a little blurry because it's far enough away, yeah. and it's like, yeah, you know, this is what the world looks like to the birds when yeah. they're up real high. Mm-hmm. And I like that that reminder that there's we're always so land-bound in our viewpoint. Yes, yes, we are. But, uh, yeah, so it has all these different things in it, um, the book does. And uh, Serena's a great character. There's Brother Jones and his issues. Mm-hmm. There's Grandpa Samuel. who may, Grandpa Samuel may or may not have dementia. It's not clear. Uh, but uh, immediately forms a bond with young Trevor. And, uh, and then Trevor starts wandering this house. In 1990, mm-hmm. there were no Xboxes. There were no there was no cable TV. Yep. And he's, that was the year I graduated. He's school. left to his own devices. You know, and it was, so he would, in those days we explored things, right? Oh, gosh. Well, I always say to my boys, you know, because they don't quite, they, they don't understand the shock I experience in a way looking at my children. You know, they're 14 and 17, so not that many years have passed since I gave birth, and I was 25 when I had my first child. So that means that my teenage years really were only about, you know, my teenage years were only about 22 years ago. You know, my memory is it's not that far away. I graduated high school in 1990. You know, see, okay, 26 years ago. God. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> don't count. Don't count. I'm <laughs> not counting. But the deal is that they don't understand why we're my, – my husband happens to be 17 years older than I am. So he's really flabbergasted at their interests in sitting around and playing computer games indoors on a sunny day in the summer. And my husband grew up, you know, just always out. And I say to the kids – when we grew up, the home wasn't a place where you really wanted to hang out. This was where you ate and you slept and you saw your family and maybe you did your homework. But I, I'll think back to my teenage years. All I wanted to do was go out, me and my bike. You know, we were gone constantly. Why would I want to be at home? And now, even computer games, you know, Pac-Man and all that, I had to have money. I had to have my bike. I had to ride for half an hour longer to get to the pizza hut right. that had the. And then after your quarters are gone, it's been forty-five minutes, and that's your once-a-week time of playing Pac-Man. These kids don't have to pay a penny because we're paying for the internet, but they don't have to pay a penny. 
you know, to play for hours on end, and they don't have to get out of their, their room or go anywhere in order to do that. Now, we've set up some limits and blah, 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 but just trying to get them to understand. So I love that you took the liberty as the writer, and thank you. I'm, I know why you did it, too, because you explained a little bit more at the coffee shop, but taking it back to 1990 and allowing us to more fully experience that story without the interruptions of the modern technological age. Yeah, there's a certain innocence, I think, about Thanks. See, he's open to seeing things. Um, he is innocent. He's coming into this family without all the baggage. He doesn't know the family story, and so he doesn't have the judgment that comes with that. The narrative is beginning. Right. And so he gets to this house, and he meets these people for the first time, and, and then he starts to listen to the house. He realizes it makes noise. It talks. Mm-hmm. It sighs, and it groans, and he listens closer, and he realizes, wait, there's something talking to him and as he starts exploring and opening doors that haven't been opened in decades and mm-hmm. finding little weird secret passages in these old houses, they would have these back stairs and front stairs and things like right. this. He fought, discovers some journals between, uh, written by one of his ancestors. He finds letters between some, some of them. And he starts to put together a story of what happened mm-hmm. back in around the turn of the... It's a fresh viewpoint. It's not one that carries an inherited narrative. Right. And so as he, the more he gets into it, the more he believes, the more he starts to understand, the more the spirit of the house begins to reveal itself to him until there ultimately is an encounter with with the spirit um, in order to set the family legacy free. Yeah. He's got, it's his mission is to um, set, get everybody we need to get ourselves on track as a, as an entire family, generations right. of family. And so it's about all these sorts of things. And um, it's, you know, I, I think it's pretty good. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you know, I've seen a lot of books. And, um, no, I yeah, I would have to agree. I think um, for anyone who's looking for, I mean, The Art of Racing the Rain is absolutely sweet, endearing, and fabulous. And the other two I haven't touched upon, you know, but they sound great. But A Sudden Light, all I can say is that as I finished my scan of it, it was, I just said, this goes to the top. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, thanks. I hope I hope you enjoy it. I, I imagine I will. And then you'll call me up and say, now, what is it about your father visiting you in his dreams after he died? And then we'll have to have that discussion. Yeah, let's save it, let's <laughs> save it for the end. Let's do or that. if any book club wants to reach out to me, I'll tell you that. Right, 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 right. No, absolutely. And um, all righty. Well, one thing I want to just make sure to point out, too, actually, is you have a nonprofit titled Seattle 7, and that's the number 7, and then Writers. Yes. Uh, real quick, what's the purpose of your nonprofit? We do good deeds for the literary community in, in the Northwest. So it was started... For the literary community. Yes. We, we focus on literacy and liter- literary groups, education. Uh, that's our mission. Uh, it started out as seven of us, thus the name Seattle oh, Seven nice. Writers. Um, and now it has blossomed to 77 of us. Wow. Uh, we are all published writers and, and, uh, we, we do, we do one day writing intensives. We do programming for, uh, different c- communities that, that need some, uh, help with the writing programs and stuff. And uh, we raise money and do grants for literary groups. Right. Uh, we have a pocket library program where we take donations of books and rehome them in nice. food banks and, uh, halfway houses, teen shelters. Oh, so brilliant. That it's our belief that everybody, you know, you can take away someone's car, you can take away their house, you can take away their job, but you can't take away someone's imagination. Right. So we want people to have, just because they're down on their luck for a while, and have access to literature so they can keep that going. So we do all these things, uh, you know, some really fantastic, we have some writers you probably have never heard of. We have, you know, obscure uh, poets. Uh, yeah. We also have, you know, some super famous ones, Tim Egan and uh, Eric Larson, Elizabeth George on Whidbey Island, uh, Nancy nice. Horan also on Whidbey um, and, uh, Tom Robbins is one of us. And so, you know, we have, we have spanned the, span the, the gamut of, of sort of the talent and success, but everybody right. is passionate about reading and writing and uh, want to make sure that, uh, that we have great bookstores to sell our books, that we have great yeah. readers to read our books and we'll take care of the writing of it. Right, right. And so is it under the auspices of Seattle Seven Writers that you do your prison reading work? No, that's sort of a separate sidebar that I got into. Yeah. Um, Although Seattle Seven is starting to venture out, we may be doing some work with Monroe in terms of a writing program, Mm -hmm. Monroe uh, Correction Center. I do a thing with uh, with just a couple of the local corrections, uh, Stafford Creek, and uh, I'm heading down to Larch um, soon. 
And uh, I do like a reading group uh, mm-hmm. with with some of the offenders. And, uh, I, you know, I go in with no judgment. Um, yeah. I don't want to tour. Uh, it's I don't want to see. I don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't want to know what they did. Um, I want to read books and talk about them. All right. Make sure. So people obviously Garth Stein is spelled S. T E I N. That's right. And um, and you're readily available online, so anyone can look you up. Sounds like you have this fabulous program set up to go along specifically with a sudden light. So book groups around the world that want to read that book can actually contact you. In fact, if they contact you sooner than later, there's even a kit mm-hmm. that your um, uh, publisher, publicist, publicist. There we go. Will send out two book groups. And it sounds really interesting. And then they can set up a Skype meeting with you and be able to actually ask you directly some of their questions and, and chat. I think that's just very generous of it's, you. It's great fun. They open a bottle of wine on their side. I open a bottle of wine on my side. We have right. a virtual glass of wine together, and we talk books. So that's brilliant. All right. And um, let's see. That's basically sort of about it. That's our show, folks. My name is March Twisdale, and you've been listening to my interview with Garth Stein. Thank you for tuning in to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guest authors share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. Thanks for coming by, Garth. It's my pleasure. Yay. And now I'll leave you all with the inspirational and timely song, We Are the Many, created by musical activist Makana. Come here, gather round the stage The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty, the bureaucrats could fall And until they are purged, we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Our nation was built upon the right Of every person to improve their plight The laws of this republic they rewrite And now a few own everything in sight They own it free of liability They own that they are not like you and me Their influence dictates legality And until they are stopped, we are not free We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few You enforce your monopolies with guns While sacrificing our daughters and sons But certain things belong to everyone Your fevery has left the people none So take heed of our notice to redress We have little to lose, we must confess Your empty words to leave us unimpressed A growing number join us in protest We occupy the streets We occupy the courts We occupy the offices of you 
Divide us into sides And from our gaze you cannot hide Denial serves to amplify And our allegiance you can't buy Our government is not for sale The banks do not deserve a bail We will not reward those who fail We will not move till we prevail We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the others in the Till you do The bidding of many, not the few We'll occupy the streets, we'll occupy the courts, we'll occupy the offices of you till you do. The bidding of the many, not the few. We are the many, you are the few.